Welcome to Ancient Heroes. I'm Patrick Garvey, and today I am with Dr. Campbell Price, who is an Egyptologist. He's been the curator of Egypt and Sudan at the Manchester Museum since 2011. He's a fellow in archaeology, classics, and Egyptology at the University of Liverpool, and he is the chair of the Board of Trustees for the Egypt Exploration Society. Welcome, Campbell. It's great to have you on. Um, I hope I got all of that information about you right. You're you're very involved in a lot of different ventures. You did. You made it sound like yeah, I was I was probably busier than I am. So thank you. Okay, great. Well, I know that we want to get talking about uh, this new exhibit that um, mm-hmm. you've you've put together. Uh, but before we do that, I just wanted to kind of hear a little bit more about you and sort of what led you into becoming an Egyptologist and uh, studying Egypt and mummies and all these things. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. And I think it is really important to ask that because um, a lot of Egyptologists get into the subject um, when they're children. And there's almost a competition amongst Egyptologists, I should say Western Egyptologists, for how young were you when you first got bitten by the bug? You know, I was seven years old, I was six years old, I was five years old, I was a fetus. Um, so it's it's something I've noticed with Egyptian friends, Egyptian colleagues, they tend to have considered other career options before getting into uh, Egyptology. Um, and maybe that's telling that maybe, yeah, from a Western point of view, for Western practitioners of Egyptology, there will always be this kind of childish, childlike awe and wonder and admiration for ancient Egypt. But I have to um, confess that I absolutely was a child um, enthusiast for ancient Egypt when I was, yeah, maybe five, five years old. My family took me in my native Glasgow in Scotland to a museum, very impressive big museum in Glasgow. And we saw a display of Egyptian objects, including a mummified body of a, of a woman. And I just fell in love mm. with that experience, especially the smell. I remember the smell of the gallery. And um, I've said uh, quite a lot since that it, I thought at the time it was the smell of antiquity, but actually it was probably just floor polish. But it really made an impression on my mind and uh, on my senses. So I think once that that possibility of studying ancient Egypt was there, I, I didn't look at anything else seriously. Wow. Interesting. No, I, I mean, it's, I totally understand what you're talking about. Ancient Egypt has, has sort of captured the fascination of people all around the world. And um, there's an ancient Egypt uh, portion, or at least there was of our, of our science museum in Louisville, Kentucky. And I remember as a kid, you could climb (laughs) through some different tunnel. I mean, they really, it was the coolest part of the, the science center. Um, and those are some of my oldest memories is, you know, they had kind of a facade and you could go inside of a pyramid and whatnot. And I actually want to go back now that I have a little, little kid, I want to go back and see what's, what's there today. But, um, well, so I came across, uh, you first, uh, because you were, um, uh, quoted extensively in an article in the guardian, as you know, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, it came across my email and, uh, I thought it looked really interesting. And I realized there was a whole new exhibit about mummies and it was dispelling different myths and things like that. And so I immediately wanted to talk to you. And, and I guess my next question is just, 
can you tell us a little bit about this exhibit, Golden Mummies of Egypt, and sort of how it came uh, into being and, and what it's all about? Yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, at Manchester Museum, it's part of the University of Manchester. It's one of the biggest collections, university collections of museum objects in Britain. Mm. So we're very proud to be part of the University of Manchester. The total collection, including, you know, everything, insects, uh, botany, geology, anthropology, archaeology, Egyptology, is four and a half million pieces. Wow. And within that, Egyptology has 18,000. So 18,000 objects from ancient Egypt and Sudan. So it's a big collection, uh, not as big as uh, the collections in Egypt or or in, in London, but it's a significant amount of ancient Egypt. And so we closed the museum, or we were preparing uh, to close, gosh, four years ago, nearly five years ago, for a major redevelopment, which is actually just about to come to its conclusion. We're hoping to reopen uh, next month. So as part of that redevelopment, we looked seriously for the first time at internationally touring an exhibition. So we'd done UK-based exhibitions before, and I suggested a topic, not just ancient Egypt in general, but um, drawing on a very significant collection from Greco-Roman period Egypt. So that's the last three centuries BC uh, mm. to the first couple of centuries, perhaps, uh, AD, uh, CE. And so that was when Egypt was ruled, first by um, a group of, of Macedonian uh, origin kings uh, called the Ptolemies, ending in Queen Cleopatra uh, the Seventh, who, who dies in 30 BC, and then Egypt under the Roman Empire, uh, ruled by Roman emperors. So we had a really significant group of uh, funerary objects, including uh, mummified people, from one particular site, the site of Hawara, um, uh, kind of uh, southwest of modern Cairo, maybe uh, like 50 miles southwest. And so because we had this big focus in the collection and it had never been displayed as as one group, uh, we selected just over 100 objects and we put together this show, Golden Golden Mummies of Egypt, because a lot of the material is uh, covered in gold leaf. And we toured it, well, just before the pandemic struck, we opened in good old Buffalo, uh, New York, uh, which I was I was very pleased to go out and visit. And actually, Buffalo's quite like Manchester in a way, so I, I felt quite at home there. But the pandemic changed our plans. Eventually, the show went to uh, Raleigh in North Carolina, and then uh, it went for three venues in China. So this has been a pretty major international touring exhibition, and it's coming back uh, to Manchester for a reopening next month. Wow. Okay. So this has uh, traveled a lot. And so I, I should uh, tell listeners that the headline of the article in The Guardian is dead wrong, Victorians mistaken about why Egyptians mummified bodies. And this was sort of one of the sort of breaking news aspects of this exhibit was around our understanding of why they mummified bodies in ancient Egypt at all. And so um, can you tell listeners a little bit about what uh, how how this understanding is is starting to change or has changed? Um, sure, it's, it's it's a subtle, but I think it's an important shift. It's been discussed um, amongst Egyptologists for some some time, but we are very used to 
the story, which is presented in museums a lot and uh, discussed in you know uh, schools uh, and in documentaries about mummification being about preserving the body in a lifelike way. So the body is meant to look like ideally someone uh, who's just fallen asleep. Mm. Now, this idea of kind of stopping time and kind of freezing a moment, um, I don't think actually relates to what the ancient Egyptians believed. So there's a very, um, and I, I, I think it is rooted in this mo relatively modern Victorian colonial concept of what other people do, the weird things other cultures do, be they ancient or modern. And as always, when we look at the ancient past, we have to do some hard work to look past this pretty monolithic interpretation or lens, you could call it, that was set up by the first interpreters that tended to be in the 19th century mm. uh, or a bit before. So for Egyptian antiquities, for, for Egyptian mummified remains, there were a lot of anxieties, I think, in Victorian Europe and the US as well, about what happened when you died, about what you should do to the body, about what might facilitate resurrection for a kind of Judeo-Christian um, audience. And so these ideas, these assumptions about mummification, which which were, were being thought about at the same time mummies were being unwrapped. So throughout the 19th century, a bit before, a bit after, um, people who learned societies, private individuals, who came into possession of, of mummified people from ancient Egypt would unwrap them um, ostensibly for a scientific um, investigation. And that tradition you know, continues to uh, the present day. But ultimately, that story says that the best preserved mummies are the royal mummies of the uh, ancient Egyptian New Kingdom. So around about you know, 1300, 1200 BC. And in that telling, um, you know, the mummy of Ramesses II, especially the mummy of his father, Seti I, are held up as these masterpieces. Mm. Uh, the kind of, this was the goal. But of course, that is a very reductive way of interpreting any civilization that lasts 3,000 years. Essentially, what you're saying is, oh, but the ancient Egyptians only got it right for a few generations, and everything else was a was a botched attempt or was a failed attempt. I don't think that's the case at all. I don't fundamentally think the ancient Egyptians wanted to preserve uh, the flesh of people at all. I think that was a, an inadvertent um, symptom of the fact the body was being treated uh as part of the ritual of mummification, which is a ritual of transformation. And I think we are uncomfortable with this idea. We're also morbidly curious, especially in the modern world where we're so divorced from death, we're so divorced from the process of dying and, 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 and corpses. So today, you know, in, 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 in Europe, in the US, often people who come into a museum and see a mummified person have never seen a corpse themselves, um, even of a relative. So it's it's surprising, it's shocking. People assume that the mummies are are fake or are some way not genuine or they're not really, you know, human remains. So I suspect what really is happening, if we 
try to work out what the ancient Egyptians are thinking is that the body, like a, a divine statue, uh, uh, an image of a god, is taken and treated chemically in some ways with resins and with dehydrating, purifying agents uh, like so-called natron. And these things are the kind of things that you would find in an Egyptian temple in an attempt to bring images of gods to life, uh, ritually bring them to life, not actually bringing statues to life. Uh, so they move around. So what is applied to images of gods is applied to the human body. And by human bodies, I mean bodies of the elite. These are wealthy people right. who could afford this because, you know, the resins, uh, the fragrant, um, uh, you know, incense, uh, the the natron, the sodium compound, the linen, linen cloth, often, you know, hundreds of yards of this is used. Mm. This could really only be, be fully um, used. Uh, these techniques could only be fully exploited by the very rich. So you're talking about the, the top few percent of society. Most people in ancient Egypt, I suspect, had a very simple burial not, uh, you know, dissimilar from in modern times in Egypt, uh, in Islamic Egypt, where the body is is buried within 24 hours, uh, very simply covered in a sheet. Yeah. Um, so I, I suspect that was probably the default. There could still have been beliefs about the afterlife um, or some existence uh, beyond biological life. But for the wealthy who wanted to show off, in a sense, but also wanted the most effective way of becoming gods, and gods were resident in, you know, stone-built, usually temples, um, temples were a preserve of the elite anyway. So depending on your class, you were emulating what you knew was the best um, version of eternity. Mm. And I think, you know, you mentioned that this was kind of a subtle difference, but it's really... Uh, it's really quite important the you know uh and and kind of stark when you think about well just because something has been preserved you know better than other methods for thousands of years it doesn't mm. mean that was the purpose Intention. that was the primary yeah. purpose um so yes. uh, that that's very interesting i also uh came across the portion of this article where um it was talked about the the ct scans of the the bodies and the faces and trying to mm. do the facial recognition kind of thing and it reminded me um i think probably a lot of listeners would be familiar with this where um they'll they'll try to reconstruct they'll try to use modern technology to reconstruct what a um a mummy or some kind of mm. um uh remains may have looked like and it was uh the the, the example that came to my mind was with um Philip II in uh ancient mm -hmm. Macedon where yep. they 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 were having trouble and I don't know if it's uh, I actually just visited the tombs there in oh. Macedon and they um it was presented as though it was definitely the tomb of Philip II I don't know if that's uh I I don't know if everyone is sure of that I guess I should say but I yeah. do know that there have been efforts to try to reconstruct some of the remains to match it up with um, you know, um, ancient texts around scars and different things, uh, because it's, it wasn't clear necessarily who 
the identity was of, of some of the people in the tombs. And so this is Macedon, obviously much different than Egypt, but I'm mm-hmm. curious to, um, um, hear more about, it, it sounds like you, uh, it sounds like in this latest exhibit, you all made the conscious decision to say no to that kind of, uh, interpretation. Right. So, yes. Uh, uh, yes. That's exactly what it is. I'm so glad you've, you've raised it and, and you framed it in the way uh, you did the uh, technique that facial reconstruction technique was really pioneered at manchester museum mm. uh, at the university of manchester so there was um uh, someone with a medical background richard neve who worked with the archaeology curator at the time uh, john prague and they 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 reconstructed the the face of philip of, of macedon and this got uh, you know transmitted um around the world and it was published in lots of, of books and i was actually just handling the uh the the facial reconstruction which we've actually taken off display i mean one thing uh, that we highlight in the exhibition but i'm interested in having a conversation about at the museum in general is how subjective these techniques are and you already kind of alluded to that we don't even really know that it was uh philip's uh, tomb obviously famous character in history father of alexander the great but you know, it was normal at that time in Greece to um, to cremate remains. Mm. You know, it, mummification was not um, practiced, uh, for example, there uh, in the same way as it was in Egypt. So, first of all, you, you're, you're dealing with partly cremated bones. Um, so you have to then reconstruct somehow a skull. And then you use a set of averages, which are averages from only part of the global population to make to make assumptions about what people looked like which don't really take into account things that would happen in your life um you know different things can affect your appearance not to not to mention of course skin tone uh, which cannot be known and is very subjective so it really is a can of worms it it really comes down to having human remains the 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 presence or maybe the lack of presence of someone through their remains in a museum context and wanting to put a face to them so it has been done for egyptian mummies as well but the results tend to look like you know the people who were around at the time the facial reconstructions were done so for that reason we are deliberately in golden mummies of egypt not showing any facial reconstructions we do not present any biomedical information about the people ages um death or health conditions because i've been in you know a hospital where mummies have been ct scanned and i've seen the debates between clinicians and uh, egyptologists with with clinical background and, and they cannot agree what in the scan is a real piece of evidence for a paleopathology? So something someone suffered from a medical problem mm-hmm. or, or a you know physical um, fact fact in in the remains, and what is an artifact of mummification? Something caused by the process of mummifying a body, which essentially completely dries it out and changes the chemistry of it. So things that would appear in a living patient, because we're obviously all quite, you know, um, living people are quite 
retain a lot of water. Um, that's completely different to what you see in a in a CT scan of a mummy. So I've never really been convinced one way or the other by by those debates. So I think best as we do in the Golden Mummies exhibition, step away completely from from that interpretation. Which actually we we offered the CT scan interpretation in the US and in China, but for the first time in Manchester, we'll say, do you know what? We're not going to look inside. We're going to resist that urge that people mostly feel to kind of rip open mummies digitally or physically, like so many kids with a birthday present. Right. And say, hang on a minute, what does the outside of the, the often beautifully, richly decorated exterior of these carefully wrapped uh, remains, what does that tell us about people's beliefs? And I think it says much more about this idea I spoke of before, transformation of the feeble, fragile human form into something permanent and enduring, but not individualized. I mean, this is something we, we have to maybe reckon with. Egyptian texts talk about a person, their identity being subsumed within this greater generic divine identity. So mm. mummy masks all look the same because they look like perfect godlike beings. So you are not looking at the face. People still assume this in museums, that somehow the, the plaster or gilded plaster or painted plaster masks were based on people as they appeared in life. They weren't. They were mass produced, albeit expensively, but they were produced, several of them, on the same mould. That's becoming quite clear um, through other analysis of, of CT scans of that kind of decorative material attached to mummies. So I think it's really an interesting time to try and take seriously some ancient attitudes rather than our own sense of, frankly, Western entitlement that we get to CT scan and see inside the, the bandages every time. Interesting. Well, and I think your point is well taken. And the skepticism around the accuracy is something that, you know, it's difficult to communicate that and how many people are when they see that image. In my opinion, 99% of people are going to just say, because human beings have such good facial recognition, you know, it's so important. And it, it's without, you know, maybe if you offered a thousand different versions and said, yeah. maybe it's, it's something like one of these possibilities, then someone might get a better idea. But when you show that one face, they go, oh, that's what this person that's looks what like. They look like. Even if you tell them separately, well, look, this is, there's a thousand different assumptions built in, et cetera, et cetera. I still think that's, what's going to stick in someone's head. So, you know, I like the I really like and appreciate anytime we're hearing more skepticism about some of these things and what we currently know based on the evidence we have and not taking that too far. Yes, <laughs> um, so, yes. yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear you, you say that. I think uh, we're of the same, same mind in this because I think in museums in general, people go in and they expect to learn facts. So, you know, facts are just being transmitted. This is how it was. Right. But especially with science and especially with archaeology, oh, yeah, you know, one answer does not cover, one option, one face does not cover the total complexity of what might actually have happened in the past. And in a way, it's kind of, a colleague described it as a kind of toxic positivity saying, oh, we know, 
I know the answer. This is what the person looked like. The right. the reality is much more complicated. And it's kind of like that's giving people what they want in a way. But I've learned more just in talking to you about the decision not to do the facial recognition than I would have had I seen some images and said to myself, oh, I guess this person looked like that. You know, it's um, just thinking about and hearing from you. I've actually learned quite a bit more about of that and and like I said, I encountered this previously, and I didn't know what to think about of, about it when I saw it. So it's definitely given me a better a better sense. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you just sort of along the same lines. I think there's ancient Egypt inspires a, all kinds of um, uh, different imaginative things in our culture and whatnot. Are, are there other major misconceptions that um, you come across? uh in in your job in your various roles and and things like that as it comes to ancient egypt i mean there there may be a lot of them but does anything come to mind about um you know misconceptions that people seem to have yeah that that's a great question um also i mean just taking that point about faces you're absolutely right you know, we as as human animals, we go into a situation and you recognize faces. That's why faces are used so much in social media, on, you know, covers of magazines and uh, publications. Um, I think there is a general assumption that Egyptian art represents people and things and life as it was. And that is a major misconception. So in the same way as those mummies in the exhibition, mummified people, have masks and the masks don't represent anything like they actually appeared in life. They're not mimetic likenesses. So what you see on temple walls, tomb walls, even little sketches, they are filtered by ideas the Egyptians had about what was appropriate to depict in certain ways in certain contexts. So people shouldn't read tomb walls or temple walls in museums or on, on sites in Egypt as, as reality. But then I think there's this funny thing about ancient Egypt, as opposed to a lot of other ancient civilizations, that the ancient Egyptians occupy this kind of sweet spot. Um, they are sufficiently far away from us to be exotic and interesting, but also they are sufficiently um, familiar to us through the Bible and through classical um, well, through scripture uh, generally for different religions, but through classical accounts, through exploration for the last uh, few hundred years. So we feel safe in some ways with the ancient Egyptians, but they're also suitably strange. So that really combines, I think, to make them interesting. And the danger is that we see them as too much like ourselves, perhaps, or we see them as too different. Mm. <laughs> so if if that makes sense, it's yeah. it's it's difficult to think about in the abstract. It's especially difficult when you're trying to design a museum exhibition to cram these kind of conversations we're having now into a label. You know, ideally there would be a curator explaining what I'm explaining now, but maybe I don't know. We could make this podcast available to everyone that goes to Golden Mummies. Um, but yes, there are lots of pervasive, persistent misconceptions because ancient Egypt was seen, as I said, initially through this colonial lens and assumptions were made. 
Wow. Well, I'll remind listeners that we're talking to Dr. Campbell Price about ancient Egypt and a new exhibit, Golden Mummies of Egypt, which has been touring around the world, uh, but is now heading back to Manchester, England. So um, along the same lines, and we don't have to go too deep into this, but I I have to admit, the the last few episodes of the podcast, I've been looking into some of the pseudo-archaeology stuff. And I'm just curious, as an Egyptologist, do you have any, what is your reaction to seeing the kind of stuff that's so prevalent in pop culture? And I don't know how much of this is in England versus America and whatnot, but um, I'm hearing, I hear stuff about Graham Hancock all the time. I see these television shows. I know it's a controversial thing. So like I said, you know, however you want to answer, but I'm just curious, you know, obviously it does bring people more interested into the subject Mm. matter like but at the same time it some of this stuff can misinform people so dramatically that i'm just curious what your thoughts are on the phenomenon of the ancient egypt as a netflix and (laughs) whatever subject um sure yeah well, um, yeah, I mean, we, we do have uh, Graham Hancock um, <laughs> in the UK um, uh, on on Netflix as well, and I've not watched. I should should point out, I've not watched that that series, but I think it all kind of um, buys into this general anti-establishment suspicion. So archaeologists are a good case. So um, archaeologists, Egyptologists have been hiding this evidence. Believe me. I have worked in the field and I know lots of practitioners of archaeology and Egyptology. If half the things that were being alleged were true, we'd be delighted and we'd be talking about them. So I think someone like, not just Graham Hancock, kind of positions himself as the rebel, as the renegade person. And he just is so fast and loose with evidence. and it is a it is a job, especially for museums, to encounter or or be the first encounter for people who might have that baggage from Netflix and have a set of assumptions. So if you can kind of hook them in with some pop culture references, that can be the mummy movies, that can be oh, you know, any number of things um where where in my case Egypt is mentioned. And then if you can slowly, gently um, suggest the complexity of the subject, I think it makes a subject like archaeology or Egyptology far more fascinating. Wow. Yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, and, and um, uh, Brendan Fraser's been back in the news. I was thinking about the mummy movies. Yeah. And, you know, I, I haven't gone back and looked at them, but I remember really liking at least the first one. And, you know, I, but I'm sure that there's so many problems throughout with so much of it. Uh, but as long as you kind of keep, you know, you don't just uh, just watch the mummy movie and then move on. And that's all yeah. you need to know. <laughs> you have to act if you're interested, you know, maybe dive into some of the actual uh, history and scholarship and whatnot. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, well, well, um, you know, one question I had for you, and this is kind of a general question about uh about ancient Egypt, but I thought who better to ask, um, the, the, the size and scale of some of the structures are, are pretty incredible. And I've never been to Egypt, but just in looking at the, you know, the great pyramids and whatnot, um, 
what uh kind of insp- you know you don't see things like of that scale and size anywhere else in the mediterranean world that i'm aware mm. of from that those eras and i just wonder like what what do you think inspired them and uh to to build such uh incredible long-lasting structures that are still uh some of the great structures in the world thousands of years later you know relative to you know in in the the Greek areas or, you know, whatnot, that kind of construction wasn't happening. What are your thoughts on, on their ability to do that kind of thing? Well, that, that really is the kind of six $4,000 question, I guess. And I should admit, first of all, that the how is still not clear. How did they build the pyramids? You know, Egyptologists get asked that a lot. And the honest answer is we don't really know. Mm. But the why of doing it, I mean, I think you've got to allow that the the Great Pyramids of Giza don't come out of nowhere. There are at least a couple of centuries of development. Um, And one of the sites I I worked at as a student, the site of Saqqara, where you have a a stepped pyramid, a six-stepped pyramid, you can see this idea more clearly there maybe than, than other places of it being a representation of structures maybe made in flimsy organic materials, they're made in stone. So uh, the step pyramid is the first sizable, you know, stone uh, structure in, in human history. Um, and it seems that the imperative or the, the reason for doing it is to represent things for eternity as eternally valid and it's almost like what I like to call the statue world. Hmm. Statues don't just represent people. They represent gods. They represent buildings. And in a way, a pyramid is just like a massive statue of perhaps, you know, the sun's rays coming down from the, uh, the sky onto, onto Earth. And the reason, well, the reason they built them so big was I suspect they wanted to impress the gods. The Pharaoh wanted to say, I am an equivalent of a god, so I will have this structure made. And even their status as tombs is not, in some cases, entirely clear. Uh, by some point, the pyramids do do quite clearly uh, seem to be used as tombs. But, you know, several kings have more than one pyramid. So just the fact of building is a kind of... Um, a boast, if you like, it's a way of showing off, not just to the, the living population, people often assume some kind of propagandistic purpose. I don't think that was really the main <laughs> the main focus. It was saying to the gods, the king could command resources, people, time to create a monument, not just to himself, but to make him appear as an equivalent of a full god. I think that's why they were built. Another somewhat random question I had um, was related to Egypt as a imperial power or or not or an or not an imperial power. I mean, I guess when it, you know clearly at varying points in history, they had uh, one of the most impressive civilizations. And I, I I guess I was wondering recently why they didn't seem to. Exp- Band to try to take over, you know, 
the whole Mediterranean world or, or what, it, or, or, or whatever. Whereas you've seen that kind of thing with some other civilizations in Rome and that sort of thing. So has that ever, has that ever, has that question ever um, come up or, you know, it seemed to kind of, they seem to kind of stay in a certain area around the Nile and, or, or am I just wrong about that? It, you know, it, my impression. No, no, I think that uh, this is a really important point that actually connects to something I said before. You know, we look at ancient civilizations through what patchy evidence we have. Um, impressive, some of it, the evidence, but still very patchy. And so, for example, the British Empire, it was assumed um, uh, the people actively involved in the British Empire in the 19th century very much saw themselves in the mould of the Romans, mm. and there's clearly a, a link uh, there, and it was assumed that Egypt had an empire. And so there are words that are still used in Egyptology, like, for example, viceroy, <laughs> viceroy. So this idea of there being a colonial official who administered an area to the south of Egypt that could be called uh, Nubia, mm. um, often associated with gold production, uh, although etymologically not necessarily linked uh, to the word nub uh, for gold. Um, and there's just a deeply kind of problematic <laughs> interpretation there where, quite frankly, colonial white British officials, middle-class, upper-class officials, want to see the ancient Egyptian ruling elite as prototypes for themselves, prototypes for the, for the Roman Empire. And it's another cliche, and I, I don't want to counter one cliche with another, but there is an idea that Egypt, by which I mean the area surrounding the Nile Valley down to the cataract zone near modern Aswan, is considered the perfect land, blessed by the gods. That is, Egypt is, is the, the perfect place. And to an extent, you could see everywhere else was perceived as inhospitable, full of dirty foreigners, um, too much effort to, to, to get to, fine to do trade. I mean, ancient Egypt was never isolated. It was never cut off from the rest of the ancient world in Africa or in the Eastern Mediterranean. But there was not that same imperative that you get with the Romans mm. or, frankly, the British or other empires to colonize, to really keep um, cultural control over other people. So th there are definitely spheres of influence. So some of my time, uh, field work time, I spent a season in the very um, northwest of Egypt, towards the Libyan border on the uh, on the uh, the Mediterranean coast. There was a fortress there, which seems to have regulated access to Egypt. The same on the eastern side. There are areas of the Levant where the Egyptians had a presence, a kind of diplomatic presence, but it wasn't like an imperial stronghold. You maybe get more of that sense to the south, um, Nubia, as I've, I've mentioned before, but it's not a kind of prototype uh, Roman or indeed British uh, empire. It's about getting access to materials, which sometimes are presented as tribute, 
as this kind of imperial tribute, and maybe the ancient Egyptians allow themselves to seem more important than they were, I think the character of that interaction was more like uh, trade. So I do not think ancient Egypt really could be described as an imperial power. No. Fascinating. Another general question, uh, and I don't expect you to be able to speak for all historians or archaeologists and whatnot, um, but there's an element to, I think, the public's fascination with archaeology, including my own fascination, Mm. around finding lost artifacts of immense value or solving some kind of mystery that's, you know, the lost Ark of the Covenant, the Indiana Jones style. There's some mystery here. And if we, you know, uh, just match up all these clues, we can uncover this artifact that's, you know, I'm reading a book right now that's of a similar premise, like a Clive Cussler type thing. (laughs) um, It's not particularly good, but uh, it did draw me in at the beginning. But I guess, you know, the reason I'm asking is I was on the verge of asking you about Alexander the Great's tomb, which a lot of people believe is somewhere Mm. lost in Egypt and that kind of thing. But it struck me that, you know, um, there's kind of a pushback sometimes, I think, from archaeologists around this isn't exactly, you know, we're not just looking for some kind of million dollar artifact that's been mm. lost or, the, you know. Um, so I guess I have two questions here. One is, mm. have you ever been curious about the tomb of Alexander? Um, and and also, what is your general impression about some of these larger than life kinds of mysteries in the hunt for lost treasures and that kind of deal? <laughs> Excellent. Excellent question. Again, uh, uh, these have been really thought-provoking questions. Thank you, uh, Patrick. But so Alexander the Great is one of, you're right, one of these holy grails of of archaeology. And you're right, one of the attractions is the fact that, especially with funerary stuff, the ancient Egyptians were, it seems in, in, in certain contexts, trying to outsmart people from digging them up. Mm. They were deliberately set against them being found. So immediately you have this sense of it's a secret, it's um, something not meant to be discovered. So there's a challenge there. There's a challenge to whoever's digging them up. But honestly, some of the most interesting work in archaeology at the moment is you know, concerning burnt seeds or you know something to the outside world that doesn't look that impressive, very small details of of recording and analysis and interpretation that's not, you know, the Ark of the Covenant. For Alexander, because he's such a celebrity and, you know, there are are accounts of, uh, you know, um, uh, Octavian, uh, the Emperor Augustus, going to Egypt and wanting to see the body of Alexander and He's presumably taken to so these are describing historical things. So he's he's buried somewhere. I suspect the default notion, as for Cleopatra the seventh as well, you have to bear in mind is these could be politically quite sensitive figures for various reasons, and they might be venerated or they might be deliberately destroyed, which makes something like the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun all the more spectacular mm. because it was found. Pretty much. I mean, people had gone in and had a rummage, but essentially intact. So once you find Tutankhamun, you know, 100 years ago, 
immediately the possibility exists. What if there are more of these things? So it doesn't really matter if Alexander the Great is out there or not. I personally am not that interested in him uh, for whatever you know he signifies to people. But because there is this track record of fairly spectacular discoveries in Egypt, then, of course, people are attracted to the notion that the same could be um, uh, true, of, uh, true of him. And so for the, uh, the, the, the second uh, question about the general phenomenon, like I say, a great majority of people are attracted to archaeology because of that element of thrill that there might be a spectacular discovery like Tutankhamun around, and even the people who are sifting through the burnt seeds probably got into it in that way. I think the key thing for museums, for people who just you know who produce documentaries or write books, is to take some of that really human interest in the deliberately buried the in the spectacular discovery and try and unpick why we are so interested and what actually survives in the record that may or may not tell us more about the past. I don't think if we found Alexander's body, you know, in a bath of honey or whatever, um, it's it's gonna tell us a lot about ancient life in, you know, the fourth late fourth century BC. Yeah. There's a lot of other elements beyond just some of these um, potential larger than life artifacts or things like that that may exist. Yeah. And I'm sure there are spectacular discoveries that are not, you know, there are pharaohs for whom we do not have tombs. So either the tombs were robbed and everything has, all traces been destroyed and we'll never find them. Or maybe some bits are waiting to be found, or maybe there is an intact tomb out there waiting, waiting as if it's intentionally, you know, hiding. Uh, but that's a, that, again, is one of these Western colonial conceits that things in Egypt are lost, mm. that the local people don't know where they are, don't, haven't known for generations in some cases, and that the await discovery and the only true discovery can be yeah, an Indiana Jones type guy, when in fact discovery, I think the reality of, of discovery of archaeology is that it happens incrementally mm. all the time. Uh, certainly in Egypt, you know, there are finds happening daily, weekly at least. Well, I want to say thanks a lot for talking to us today, talking to me. It's been a great conversation. We, we've we talked uh, in great specifics and some of these general questions as well that that I've, I've wanted to pose to a true expert. So I appreciate that. Um, I'll remind listeners that the uh, exhibit that we've been talking about um, is called Golden Mummies of Egypt. And is that has that opened again in Manchester or? It's going to open, uh, well, we're talking in the middle of January. It'll open in the middle of February and it will be open until the very end of 2023. So it's the only European showing 
of, of the exhibition. So if you can get to the UK and you're interested in Greco-Roman Egypt, uh, do come and visit us in Manchester. Awesome. And I do believe, too, that there's a, an associated book that you authored. Is that correct? There is. There is. Um, that is is just about to be re-released. Um, it was was produced for the the first um, tour of the, the show in the US, but it's now gone into a, another printing, and that will be available through Manchester University Press internationally from next month. Great, great. Well, we'll include those links on the website as well. Nice. And is, is there anything else uh, you want to point listeners to in regards to your work or social media or anything like that? Um, I'm quite keen. Um, I'm a qu- quite a keen tweeter and user of, of Facebook and Instagram. And if anyone's interested in what's happening in Manchester or in my own uh, take on Egyptology, they can find me at EgyptMCR, at EgyptMCR. Awesome. Awesome. Great. Well, uh, thanks again, Campbell, for talking to me. And uh, this is uh, this is great stuff. So hopefully we'll we'll talk one day in the future as well. I would love that. Thanks, Patrick. All right. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Thank you to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Thanks for listening.